Bob Murphy Show, episode 284. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Today we're going to be doing a rebroadcast of a recent interview I did with Vance Jin on his podcast titled Let People Prosper. Vance is the head of Jin Economic Consulting. He is a senior fellow at the Americans for Tax Reform and Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and several other areas as well. Formerly from 2013 through 19 and then again 2020 through 22, he was the chief economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I think that's the capacity in which I met him when I was down at Texas Tech, I believe Vance drove over and participated in some of our events. I think that's how I got to know him originally. So he had me on his podcast. And let me just say, a lot of these shows that I do, we cover the same territory. Like, hey, what's Austrian economics? And, you know, why is the business cycle happening? What do you think is going to happen? But Vance and I do get into some stuff here that I haven't covered elsewhere. And also, or including, I should say, some of my concerns with the way that standard free market economists react to certain challenges lately, I think sometimes they're missing the mark. So it's not that their policy conclusions are wrong. I'm still laissez-faire all the way, baby. But I think sometimes the way they handle criticisms from both the left and the right in terms of, you know, hey, this seems to be what's happening with your policies and it's not good. Instead of explaining well, no, actually, that's other types of government intervention that are causing what you're looking at. That is a genuine problem. Instead, it's, you know, ah, quit your belly aching. And I don't think that's very productive. So in any event, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Vance Chin. Well, today, I'm delighted to have on a guest who knows a lot about economics, who is able to explain it in a way that we can all understand, but is very interested in making sure that we have more liberty and more prosperity. And it's none other than Dr. Bob Murphy. Bob, welcome to Let Field Prosper Show. Thanks, fans. Glad to be here. All right. Well, great. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased to have you on the program. I've been listening to your program. You have your own podcast, which we can talk about here in a minute, and, and a lot of other great stuff that you do and the books that you write. So thanks for all the efforts that you have. So for the audience, let me give them your bio real quick. So Bob Murphy is Chief Economist for Infinio and Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute. He has a PhD in economics from New York University. Murphy is the author of several books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism and most recently, Understanding Money Mechanics. If you haven't read those yet, please go out and get them. They're, they're great, but also be sure to listen to his podcast. So Bob, like I do with all the other audience members, um, I like to start off with this to find out why you do what you do. So why do you do what you do each and every day? The, the ultimate answer is I'm Christian, so I, I do <laughs> try to use my gifts to serve the Lord and help people, but in terms of the you know professional niche that I'm in, I was fascinated by economics in high school. At first, I liked physics. I thought I was going to do that. But then economics just won me over. Um, just the ability, like the, the self-regulating systems and how the spontaneous order of the market emerges. You walk into a grocery store. You just expect there to, the shelves to be lined with goods. You expect 
you know, the electricity to be running and everything, the refrigeration to be working. When you grab stuff, when you hear walk up, there's someone at there waiting to check you out or maybe you go to the self-checkout at this point. So just it, it, people, it's so automatic. People take it for granted. And yet, you know, economists know when you study these things that, well, no, it doesn't just happen automatically. It just like medical doctors realize your body's internal regulation doesn't just magically happen either. There's all kinds of complicated things going on that in a healthy person here is not even aware of. So likewise, a quote, healthy economy actually requires a lot of uh, institutional prerequisites and so forth. And that's one of the roles of economists is to explain that to the public, partly because, I mean, just general education, just people want to be interested in how does the world work. But beyond that, because typically government officials are so often bent on destroying that system, perhaps with good intentions, that it's important for the public to realize, oh, wait a minute, these government programs that we think are going to you know, provide benefits actually are going to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Yeah, no, it's a great way to put it. And I fell in love with economics too. I mean, that's why I do what I do. And I came at it from this kind of calling of let people prosper. That's where I kind of felt God put on my heart as well as being a, a Christian as well. And it kind of got me on this path, you know, as a first generation college student going to get a PhD in economics and everything else. And now we're having these great discussions and, and trying to figure out what's the next best step forward. Um, it's great to hear your story as well, Bob. And I know you You've been around um, doing this for a while. What really, you know, got you interested in, and, and you write a lot about this on, you know, Austrian economics. What got you excited about what they do in that school of thought? For older people who know, my dad listened to Rush Limbaugh in the car when he would get me, you know, from soccer practice or something. And he was a, a nowadays we call him a right-wing commentator. And that was the first place where I heard the idea that a government plan, just because it had good intentions, might backfire. And I, I think I was in like eighth grade or something like that. And it's amazing to me now that that was the first time I'd encountered that notion, but it, but it was. And then that, and my dad also had this thing called the Conservative Chronicle, which had op-eds from conservative the commentators. But the ones that I liked the most were the economists. And so that was people like uh, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams. And so I started getting into economics. And I, my first book was actually one by Milton Friedman. So I was in what we would call free market economics with a Chicago school slant. I was reading National Review and and there was a natural disaster and some politicians were saying, well, the bright side is it will boost GDP and create jobs. And some guy was commenting on that and said, Henry Hazlitt would be rolling over in his grave. So then I was like, who's this Henry Hazlitt? And I got his classic book, Economics in One Lesson. He dedicated it to Mises, who is one of the giants in the Austrian school. I started reading him. I started reading Murray Rothbard and I just... Rothbard in particular, I felt just had the clearest exposition. I didn't always agree with him, but even when I disagreed with him in his essays, he was so crystal clear. You knew, oh yeah, step four, his argument, I think is wrong. And then, so, you know, I, I would take it the branch it off in this way. And so, um, that's really what I got in particular, specifically, what does the Austrian school offer? I think their theory of the, the capital structure in an economy and where and what causes the business cycle, to me, that's the most compelling theory because it's a little bit different from even like the Chicago school, even though they're both anti-Keynesian and, and both generally free market oriented. I think the Austrians' diagnosis of why is there a boom-bust cycle in market economies is, is the best I've seen. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you a lot on that, Bob, and, and I, I want to dive into that here here soon. And one of the things I was I was thinking about with your with your podcast, the 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 Bob Murphy Show, right, where you say the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. I I love how you, how you how you do that, and you always break down some of the key issues. You know, just here recently, you know, we're recording this on June twenty first, twenty twenty three. We had some good ones on. You know, even Milton Friedman slipped in his defense of trade deficits. 
you, you like to push the envelope on, on different things and, and go after them. And I think that's important. That's part of the discussion that we need today. Too often people are afraid, I think, to have that tension that you've got to go out and beat each other's side of the head on Twitter or something else. Um, but I like how your approach is, you know, you were on, with Tom Woods for a long time. I learned a lot from them and him as well. And so with your podcast, what do you hope to really get across? Is that really what, it, what it's all about? Or like, what is your underlying um, um, thought process when you're going into each one of your episodes? You, you hit the nail on the head that I think the, the people who really like my stuff, what they appreciate, and I, I'm not just speculating, like they'll often email me or mention it to me, is to say how, you know, I don't just, you know, root for my team. That there's plenty of times where, like you said, the good examples recently, the Milton Friedman thing, because the, the context of that was, uh, I think it was Josh Hawley was pounding the table and wanting to bring, put tariffs in place against China or something like that. And then a lot of free market fans on Twitter, meaning fans of the free market, were, you know, chastising him and saying, no, trade deficits are great and blah, blah, blah. Here's Milton Friedman. And so my point was, yeah, I'm not for tariffs. Those are dumb. But you guys actually, you just used an invalid argument to argue for a true conclusion or rather to, you know, to criticize Josh Hawley's wrong policy or bad policy. You use an invalid argument because they were basically arguing that trade deficits were necessarily good and that we were, you know, getting like, isn't it better to get more goods for less? And that's what a trade deficit is. And, and actually, that's not a, that's an invalid argument. So, yeah. so, yes, I like to do stuff like that, where if I especially if I see, quote, my side confidently going around lecturing people when they're when they have something wrong i like to be the one saying guys actually let's let's clean up our arguments a little bit and you know i i would like to think if i was the guy you know deployed in vietnam or something and somebody on my team was like shooting up a village and say hey hey we're not supposed to be doing that you know yeah, people yeah. might say hey what are we doing it's us versus them and they say well yeah but we, we're supposed to be the good guys here so yeah yeah well uh, hopefully i won't find myself on that side uh bob uh but it may happen who knows yeah, it may happen right. you know I, I talk a lot about those types of things here on the show for the most part i, I usually agree not always though um but but there's a lot of agreement but, but maybe that's something i need to look into you know moving forward of of having you know the Orin castles of the world there's a lot of discussion happening there there's there's a big discussion right now you know on the right between the old right they're calling the market fundamental fundamentalists and then the new right, which I kind of call the government fundamentalists or something else that's having more government involvement. But there's this big discussion that's happening right now that I think is really important for, you know, folks like us to be a part of that. Have you been keeping up with that as well? Exactly. Yeah. I, w I was wondering if you just said that coincidentally, or if you knew that, yeah, I'm trying to actually get Oren, he's, he's traveling or whatever. So I'm, I'm actively working with his book. Well, I'd be great. I'm getting him on for, for just that reason. It's a similar thing with him that, you know, I've read, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but his, their new manifesto, or I don't know what they call it. That, the, that his organization, I think it's called American Compass, put out. And, and, and what recently happened on Twitter is that, you know, he had a chart showing um, re real wages for, uh, I'm sure what the exact term, for non-supervisory and, um, and for the line and factory work or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's like their, it's their, their new cost of living index that they're trying to build. Yeah, and, it, and so anyway, the, it, it, I didn't believe the chart at first because it was showing, oh, real wages for workers have not kept pace. And... I, I dealt with those claims before, and I know all, you know the difference. But I actually just thought the idea was, oh, real wages for workers had gone up, but just not nearly as much as like the top one percent or things like that. But in his chart, it was showing like there was a huge downtrend for a long for decades, and then only recently, such that it was like one percent cumulative increase over the last forty years or something, and that didn't sound right. And I went and looked it up, and it was right. You, you give or minus, and I was surprised by that, and so I tweeted that out to people. I said, yeah, obviously tariffs against China are not going to fix this. And I agree that's silly, but for the free market fans where it's just saying, no, everything's great. You know, everything's awesome. Capitalism, yay team. 
that you can, you know, you need to understand what it is that these people are reacting to. And when you just tell them, no comparative advantage, go read Bastiat, get out of here. When they see that, you know, the middle class is struggling in, in certain respects, like you're not helping anything that you're, they're just going to think that you're not listening. And people were just lecturing me about, oh, well, no, see, it's total compensation. And I think, again, I, I just got the sense that they weren't listening to, you know, that they weren't even trying to listen to what guys like Warren Cass were saying. Last thing I'll say on that is before Oren took his sort of protectionist turn, I was a fan of his on the issues of climate change and also um, with Obamacare. And he wanted, he like dug into the life expectancy. If people remember, there was a brief period where when, when the new figures were coming out showing that life expectancy was dropping in the U.S. and people were freaking out and some were saying, oh, well, the states were, you know, it has to do with because the Republican governors aren't endorsing Obamacare or whatever. And Oren dug into the numbers and showed it was the opposite. Okay, so my, I'm saying he was really a good data guy and on the climate change stuff, he de- I, I won't summarize it here, but he did some really interesting things like going through the congressional testimony of some of the ostensible experts from quote the other side who were pushing a carbon tax and he was uncovering something and he was, it was really insightful stuff that I was writing blog posts, just summarizing what he had done. So then when everyone is running victory lab saying, wow, this guy, Warren Cass is a complete moron. I was like, no, that's not. He's not stupid, right? So anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the book is called, just for the audience, it's Rebuilding American Capitalism, a Handbook for Conservative Policymakers. And, and so there's a lot of discussion about that. It's American Compass. I, I think you're right. I mean, I also read What's in Future Worker, right? The book he wrote a couple of years ago about the labor market and what's going on there. And I, I think he gets a lot of stuff right, that there, there are problems in the labor market. There are issues that are going on. What I often disagree with are the policy recommendations. It's usually more government, more of a top-down approach from what I see, where you're overlooking how the government is already influencing that market, influencing the labor market um, through taxes, regulations, unions, and everything else. And it's kind of like, let's get those out of the way first before we start imposing more government in the process and doubling down on some of these some of these bad uh, policies. Yeah, yeah. my reaction is, I think, identical to yours. That Yeah. Uh, a lot of his state, like, I'm sympathetic to what his diagnosis of the problem is. But then, uh, yeah, I think his solution, his prescription is, is, is totally wrong. It's just going to make things worse. It, but again, so what, what I was saying to the people who were just dismissing him as a moron or, you know, some status is I would, I would just like, you, you guys, are, you're, for one thing, you're not helping. Like, yeah. if what the people who are attracted to him are hearing is, no, we can't have tariffs against China because we've been taught the dogma of free trade. And here's a model with two countries and two goods and see that you're going to sound like you're just disconnected from reality and they're going to keep listening to Warren Cass. Whereas I think they, you know, the, a better, more persuasive approach is say, okay, yeah, I understand what you're saying. This is an issue, but the causes of that are, you know, government intervention in healthcare. So, so for example, one of the things the people responding to when I said, Hey, this chart is kind of alarming. The fact that workers, real wages, you know, are pretty uh, stagnant over the last 40 years. And then they say, oh, no, but look at, you got to look at total compensation and that, you know, rises more. And I say, okay, but what part of the, and it was like all employees. And so I pointed out like two things between the differences to the two charts is one is the all employees is catching like management level people who are getting stock options. So that's one difference as opposed to the, you know, the chart that I saw was more like production workers and non-supervisory employees. And then the other thing was a big part of now people's total compensation is the employer pays the health insurance. And that's a huge deal. That's been a growing number over time. And it's not because now everyone gets an MRI every week and they feel like, oh, yes, we're so much wealthier than the 1960s 
with all this extra health care that we get that's really worth it. It's more like, geez, I can't believe the premium for our family is, you know, I don't even want to say a number. Like, it's it's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, in a sense. So, it's so it's not that the, the companies just became greedier and now they're not, you know, they're unpatriotic. That's not the issue. They The companies really are, you know, pay, paying according to market principles. Workers are getting paid their marginal product to speak like economists. It's just that because of the explosion in healthcare costs, workers aren't seeing that in, quote, their take-home pay. Yeah. And so Orrin and people like him aren't wrong to say something seems broken with our system. It's just, I agree with you guys, that the, the, you know, it's not because, oh, we outsourced all our jobs to China because of the dogma of free trade. Right, 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 right. There's some interesting um, posts, and I'll put this in the show notes too, about um, Scott Winship and Jeremy Orpidal. They've been posting some some interesting comparisons. I think they just had a paper out trying to look at what Cass has talked about with these different earnings measures and cost of living adjustments. And then they use kind of a, a different set of adjustments and say, no, actually, people are doing better over time compared to what Cass has showed. But, it, you know, and, and, and look, I didn't even necessarily mean for us to go down this line, but I think it's important mm-hmm. to, to talk about what's happening here uh, because these are the types of discussions that we need to have. Uh, you know, I'm glad that that Warren, the Orrin cast is out there talking about this and and how it's yeah. pressing us from a more pre market perspective. I would consider us to be more free market is mm-hmm. is that it, it's pushing us to make sure that we are having the right train of thought and making sure that we are um, second guessing our assumptions to make sure that we're not missing something. And and and, and I think it's it's going to help us um, as we move forward. Yeah. Another thing too is just to point out, like maybe even the internal contradiction is. A lot of these charts, so again, for the folks you know, in the audience who don't know exactly what you and I are referring to, there's lots of charts coming up from conventionally left-wing organizations. And now, you know, sort of the, the novelty of Orrin and his group is they're coming from the right and they're pointing to similar things. You, for a while, we've seen these charts that show this ostensible disparity between like total productivity. Like, so there'll be charts of, you know, U.S., like one line will say productivity, the other line will say real wages or something like that. And they tend to track each other through the 40s and 50s and 60s. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge and growing divergence in more recent years. You know, productivity keeps rising, but wages are stagnant. And a lot of people say, oh, I see if the tax cuts of the A's, like the typical left-wing groups will point to it. But when you actually look at their own chart, you see, no, the divergence started in like 1973. Yeah. And then you say, well, gee, what happened in the early 70s that might explain this fundamental shift in something economic and well, Nixon went off the gold standard in 71. And so I was, you know, saying to people, we, you don't have to take the left-wing view according to your own logic. If there is this entity, again, I'm being very crude here, but if someone's running a printing press and and handing out hundred dollar bills to people, meanwhile, workers are over here making things and getting paid their marginal product. And then everybody shows up at the stores with the same legal tender money, then it, there's a sense in which the workers actually can't be getting paid the full value of their product. It's there's this other group that's getting, you know, the money also, yeah. and they're not working for it, right? And so, like, just to try to, even if you do a simple model to try to reconcile that, there's a sense, of, you know, what would that look like? And I'm saying, I think it would kind of look like those charts yeah, to show that when inflation comes in the picture, then all of a sudden, the workers, in terms of their real, like, how many goods do they get to take home, there's a sense in which, yeah, they're not it's not all ending up on their on their dining room table if there's this other group who's able to just get newly printed money and and buy stuff that way. Like that has to yeah. be true. And so I'm saying we you know, we don't need to say there's something wrong with capitalism. If you don't like fiat money, you could this is what it would look like. So stop just clubbing people over the head 
just realize, oh, wait a minute. No, this actually is an arrow, you know, in our quiver. Yeah. No, exactly right. Exactly right. And speaking of things that I guess get people fired up sometimes is the differences in how an economy runs or, or, or the explanation for how an economy runs. And, and look, the Austrian school of economics is probably the one, in my view, that explains things the best. I don't know that I would say I'm an Austrian economist. Uh, I'm a free market economist because I kind of pick a little bit from the Austrian school, the Chicago school, the, the public choice school, the institutional school, all this, all these different ones. And, but, I, but I think it explains things so, so well that it makes it easy to see. I mean, Gene Callahan's work, you know, and, and others that are out there, uh, Von Mises, of course, Hayek, that I've really learned a lot. From you, Pete Betke, and others that are out there, this Austrian business cycle theory, though, is something that is always in the back of my mind. It's something that I'm thinking about when the Federal Reserve is acting, and that explains things so much differently than all the other schools <laughs> that are out there. And and, and sometimes I think it, it kind of gets me in trouble sometimes where it could, where I'm like, look, we're about to have a recession because all these malinvestments and things are going to start to clear, and it doesn't happen right away and be like, oh, be, well, that didn't happen. I was like, well, you have to look at under the under the hood. You can't just look at the surface of what things are going on. But before we get too far down that route, how how would you explain you know the Austrian business cycle theory uh, for the audience? Sure. And by the way, I'm I'm friends with Gene Callahan. I'm going to mention it. Yeah, I was on a, sh- a podcast, yeah. and the guy is when he was talking about the Austrian school said Gene Callahan, Mises, and Hayek. Those are the first three names he mentioned. And yeah, and he's he's going to get a kick out of that. <laughs> good. Good. Um, so. And, and please, let's remember to come back to your point about how you know, people you may be having egg on their face, and I'm certainly guilty of this because I do want to talk about that. It, yeah, it was my own anyway. But let's let's not, uh, forget to come back if we can. So yeah, this but the standard exposition of the Austrian theory, and Mises was the first to fully develop this. Then I uh, came on and elaborated on. It. Actually, this is partly why I won the Nobel Prize. So the the basic idea is in the Austrian framework, interest rates are market prices. They serve a function. Just like the price of oil, if you will, communicates information. It, you know, it 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 helps guide people, entrepreneurs, and, and consumers as the the relative scarcity of oil. It means something. If oil is a hundred dollars a barrel versus twenty, that you know means something. And if the government somehow made oil appear to be twenty dollars a barrel, and people could buy it at that price, when really it was quote supposed to be a hundred in terms of supply and demand and the fundamentals, that would screw things up. The, you, you wouldn't be letting the market price do its job. And so in the specific case of interest rates, the Austrian story is that when the banking system, and then in modern times, you know, fueled by the central bank, when it floods the market with cheap credit by basically creating money that's not backed by genuine saving, it pushes down interest rates. That's how it gets the public to hold more loan or to take more loans. So it pushes down interest rates and it gives this false appearance of prosperity but the interest rate, in a sense, is artificially low. It really shouldn't be that low, according to the fundamentals of you know saving and investment and, and uh, capital accumulation and such. It, what it does, perversely, is it it gives a signal to entrepreneurs to make longer-term investments than they really should. Because if you think about other things equal, the lower the interest rate, it makes a project look profitable if it requires upfront investment, and then the returns only come down the down the road. That to, to evaluate, is this a profitable project? You need to know what discount rate am I using? And so the lower the rate, you're willing to tolerate a longer period to recoup your investment. And so the lower interest rate kind of gives the green light to businesses to start long-term projects. They hire workers and so on, but there's not enough aggregate saving to actually get them all over the finish line. So the, it causes this temporary period of prosperity. Businesses are expanding, they're hiring workers, bidding them away from their old jobs. Unemployment drops. Everybody feels 
their their wages are going up. That's how the, the expanding businesses attract them from their old ones. People can get work really easily. It feels great, but but it's built on quicksand. There's not actually more drill presses and factories and you know iron ore to go around just because the banking system created more credits. And so ultimately, prices start rising. The banks get nervous. The central bank maybe started jacking up rates and, and halting or, or slowing down the creation of new money because they see prices rising and they get it. They get nervous. And then that's, you know, when everything flips in our times, the yield curve inverts, you know, when they slam on the brakes, short rates spike, long rates go down. That's a quote, inverted yield curve. And historically that tends to precede a recession, a recession in, in the Austrian theory that dovetails nicely with what the stuff Mises was working on a hundred years ago. That's, that's why. And so, you know, that's the, the real male investments that occurred during the boom, the chickens come home to roost and there's a crash. So what happens? Businesses realize we were artificially, uh, we were overly optimistic. And so what do you do? We have to lay workers off. And so the, what the Austrian theory is kind of explaining is why is there a cluster of errors? Why is it that a lot of businesses realize all of a sudden, oops, we hired too many people. We've got to start letting them go. And that's why the aggregate unemployment numbers shoot up and it's, quote, a recession now. So that's kind of the basic story. I'll, I guess I'll stop there and we can take it how you want. Yeah, no, that, that was good. That was good, Bob. And I think part of it is kind of the orders of production start off with the higher order of production and then it kind of goes down from there. And, and if those higher orders of production are, are influenced, incentivized to act differently than they would in the private market, usually because of, the, like you said, lower interest rates held too low, too much credit liquidity in the marketplace then that would create these malinvestments and other, other longer-term effects that will happen. And we'll see that through inflation. We'll, we'll see that through less economic growth. We'll, we'll see that through a lot of other ways. Um, the, the, the timing is usually what the concern is, <laughs> having egg on your face. I, I think a lot of these things that we've seen over time, you know, uh, John Taylor, who I've had on the program, I mean, he's talked a lot about keeping interest rates too low for too long compared with the Taylor rule or something like that. I mean, is it quite Austrian, right? But I, but I think he's been kind of talking about this on a more macro uh, way to get this information out there. Um, but when you when you look at it during the 2000s, the interest rates were so low, artificially low, and there wasn't the quote-unquote inflationary pressures that I think many of us talked about thereafter. But we did see a big crash. We saw a lot of other things happening. And then during the the aughts, we, we've also had pretty low interest rates. And they started raising them a little bit. And then we had a crash, but that was also a crash during COVID and the shutdowns and all the nonsense that happened then. But now we've seen interest rates back to 0% for a couple of years. Um, they're starting to rise again up to 5.25% as the, you know we're recording this. They'll probably keep raising them throughout this year. But there's, you know, these boom and bust cycles keep happening. And yes, we, we're actually seeing the inflation now, right? Like the Austrian school, yes, you see the inflation and everything else. And people would say, well, well but what about the recession? And, and I kind of think that we've been in a recession for a while. When you look at some of the data, like gross domestic output, the average between gross domestic product and gross domestic income has been negative or declining now for four out of the last five quarters. Man, there's been other indications that there's a lot of slowdown in the economy, but the, the labor market really hasn't shown that, at least on the surface. There's been some things like the household survey report is that was down 300,000 last month compared to the establishment report that was up 300,000. So there might be some, some trade-off here of tech workers losing their jobs first. And there's some changes within the labor force of how people have left the labor force, how many are in. How much of this is due to immigration issues that are going on? There's just so many other factors that are happening. Um, but but speaking of egg on your face, kind of want to bring it back to that point. Where where have you found that as, as being an issue and, and anything else that you want to add there? I 
famously or infamously was wrong. If you go to my Wikipedia entry, it looks like I was born and then lost an inflation bet to Paul Krugman. That's yeah. the two main things in my life. Um, and so what, yeah, so what happened is, you know, 2008 crisis hits, the Fed comes in, starts engaging with what was dubbed quantitative easing, even though the Fed didn't actually call it that. And, and so people like me, when we saw like the Fed's balance sheet just double in a matter of months, people like me were going around and including me, I don't know me, <laughs> that it wasn't literally me. I, I was part of it. I yeah. and others were going around telling people, whoa, this is a very bad idea. The reason we had the 2008 crisis, I argued, was because of loose monetary policy under Greenspan. There was the dot-com bubble that burst. Greenspan cut interest rates down to 1%, held them there for a year. That, I thought, spawned the housing bubble. And so I, so now what the Fed's doing by bringing interest rates down to basically 0%, and it ended up holding them there for seven years, actually. So I was you know, going around doing PowerPoints and telling the public, if you buy my general story about what ha caused the housing bubble, or at least think that's part of the story, Clearly, what they're doing now is going to be a lot worse because they, in terms of how much money they pumped in and how low the interest rates were, how long they kept them low. And so you're right. So, and I, among other things, I, by the way, just to be clear, I didn't bet Paul Krugman about inflation. I bet David Henderson and Brian Kaplan, who are both free marketeers. Right. Brian Kaplan's literally an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. So it's not that I lost to a Keynesian. It's I had a disagreement with my colleagues who were all free marketeers. And about the timing of stuff. And so, mm -hmm. but I did, I had bet that US CPI would break double digits in a 12 month period by a certain date. And it obviously didn't by that point. Yeah. So, but so, but the, but the big picture though, I do want to stress it is it wasn't Austrian specific theory saying there's going to be high inflation. All monitors it, in general to say when the government floods the market with a bunch of money, other things equal, you'd expect prices to be higher. I right? just saying the supply goes up the price of, of something. That, uh, you know, goes down. So in this case, the purchasing power of money goes down, meaning prices go up. So, you know, that wasn't per se Austrian. And certainly it wasn't about Austrian business cycle theory. And what's interesting is, so you're right. I was very pessimistic because, oh, gee, the government and the Fed are messing things up. I was worried about the economy crashing, but I should have actually just said, no, what the theory itself says is that it's, you know, artificial credit expansion causes a boom. And then when they tighten, that's when the bust comes. And that is what we saw play out. And specifically, you know, one measure is, is the inverted yield curve. So the Austrians per se don't talk about that, but I think that it fits nicely in with Austrian theory that if the Fed, you know, in the context of the U.S., if they flood the market with liquidity, you'd expect to push short rates down and maybe even make long rates go up as people build in longer, you know, price inflation expectations. And then vice versa, when the Fed slams on the brakes and, and hikes rates, that's going to hike short rates more than long rates. And so that totally fits that a quote, normal upward sloping yield curve is during a boom period, whereas the inversion happens right when they tighten and then you'd expect the real economy to crash soon after. So that made sense. And so for all those years, when the interest and short-term rates were basically zero, that's actually consistent with standard Austrian theory to say, no, nope, the crash isn't coming yet. You have to wait till they tighten. And then we did see, now I think you alluded to this, there was an inverted yield curve in what? Uh, the summer of 2019. Yeah. And so I was going around using that metric and saying, okay, I would expect there to be a big crash coming. And then COVID happened. So technically, yeah, unemployment went way up. You know what I mean? So right. critics or cynics would say, you got lucky 
But I would say, but it's not my fault. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I, I'm certainly not wrong. There was a big, all you can do is say, I got lucky. Yeah. But we don't know. Like I, I wasn't wrong. It did happen. And then the Fed expanded again, actually made 2008 expansion look like nothing during COVID. And it's only recently where we, they started tightening and we do see, you know, the inverted yield curve. So in terms of just the timing of when the inverted yield curve happens and then when the recession, I've been saying it would be by uh, the end of t- the last quarter of 23 or first quarter of 24. And even to be clearer, I'm not saying in real time they'll know it, but I'm saying, you know, two years from now, looking back, I think the NBER would say, oh, yes, that recession began, you know, last quarter of 23, first quarter of 24 and that in that range. Uh, if the so-called predictive power of the yield curve, you know, I'm not saying anything crazy or idiosyncratic. Yeah. Th- what the yield curve has done since World War II. And this isn't just an Austrian thing. This is you know, a standard Chicago school type uh, indicator. So yeah, I guess that's what I would say is that, so don't get me wrong. I was warning about a falling economy between 2009 and 2019, uh, but it was more because I was just looking at, wow, look at all the damage they're doing. I actually was deviating from Austria. What people said, when's the crash coming? I should have said when they actually tightened. That's what you know, and they hadn't been tightening. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there were a lot of other things going on, right? During that time, I mean, you had, the Federal Reserve started to pay interest on excess reserves. So that was actually taking that liquidity out of the marketplace at the same time they were putting it in. So it, it wasn't the standard adding liquidity in the markets. They're open market operations to where you would see the flood of money go in the system and then supply not catching up. So you'd have you'd higher inflation where they'd have to ratchet up interest rates at a faster rate to bring, to, to bring the bus. You're right. And, and so I, I think this is one thing I've been trying to think about is how else can we show this? Because I don't know that, I don't think CPI is the best measure we should be using. I mean, I think we would probably agree that inflation really should be measured by the increase in the money supply, right? The increase in the monetary base is really where I look. Like even this latest period, people were talking about, well, there was no inflation at first and then there was transitory inflation and everything else. And I was like, look, this is going to be persistent inflation. Now, of course, that's a big bet kind of to your point, but but when I saw as much money as putting the economy and not having the interest on excess reserves um, like they did to, to suck that liquidity out and having the regulations, the supply chain effects, the shutdowns, the anticipation of higher taxes under the Biden administration, I didn't see the supply side of the economy expanding at a fast rate. At the same time, we had all this increase in the money supply. I mean, the monetary base doubled, from more than doubled, from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. We're back down to about $8.3 trillion now as it's gone about 6% from its height, um, but we're still not down that much compared to how much they increased over that period of time. This is why, you know, I think that there's still inflationary pressures that are out there. Yes, we're down from the 9% that we were almost a year ago to 4% now, so there's some disinflation that's happening. That's still more than 2% of the, the Fed's target interest rate uh, or inflation rate of 2%, right? But I think that we have some other issues that we need to be looking at, which is why, I, you know, you know, about I, I, I was on actually Neil Cavuto today on, on Fox Business and they were talking about the interest rates and how they raised them 10 times and how they took this pause and maybe they'll be up to 6% by the end of the year as they expected to, to raise them again in July. So like, why did they why did they stop now? But I was like, look, I think we really got to stop looking so much at the interest rate and look at the balance sheet. I mean, the balance sheet is still at a very high level. There's a level effect that happened. Yes, it's coming down some now, but where is all that money going? That's the orders of production that I think the Austrian school would want to be talking about because that's affecting trade securities at the long end of the spectrum and the short end of the yield curve, to your point. But it's also affecting mortgage-backed securities. It's, it's affecting a lot of other markets that are out there 
that I think are at the precipice of these big bubbles that are, are really are going to burst. Uh, and that will be the big crash that, that we're going to see, right? I, I think we're going to have a hard landing this time uh, as we move forward. But I wonder what you're thinking. Well, right. So great. Yeah, we obviously raised a lot of points there. Um, so one thing for sure that I wanted to avoid doing, and this kind of goes back to the earlier stuff about like, oh, just, you know, whatever our team says and we, hey, what's the, what's our latest talking points to make sure we hit, you know, hit those idiots on the other side of the barricades. Yeah. Um, is that, yes, from quote, my side, it, we had been warning about the falling dollar and rising price inflation. Some people were even saying the word hyperinflation. I was not saying that, but some were. And so that just kept not happening year after year after year. And then when we finally did see it, you know, re recently, uh, like what, 2021, 22. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to avoid just saying, yep, see, we told you so. Because, you know, I knew that th we, I didn't think it was going to take that long. Right. Right. And so I didn't want to just play it off. Like, yeah, this is exactly what I said. The way a lot of people that I knew were calling for it, you know, eight years earlier. And it was like, you didn't say it was going to take eight years. So I was trying to avoid that. And I, and part of it, you're right. It depends what aggregate you look at. And what was interesting is at the time, so yes, in 2008, in the, uh, I think it was November, the Fed, no, sorry, it was October, the Fed started paying interest on reserves, which was a new policy that they implemented right then. And so, we, you know, among other things, you could say it shows how uh, fake it was, the, the justifications they gave for the bailouts, is they were saying, oh, we don't want to, it's not that we want to bail out Wall Street, but we have to rescue Main Street. We got to keep credit flowing. I was like, well, if you wanted to keep credit flowing, why did you start paying banks to not make loans to their customers? Right. And that's what paying interest on reserves does. That's one way of looking at it. They're, the Fed's literally paying them to keep the reserves parked at the Fed rather than lending them out. M1 was still increasing, right? So like, some people were saying, oh yeah, the reason we didn't get inflation was because it was all bottled up in the banking system. And, and yes, a lot of the reserves did pile up, but still measures like M1 were rising. But what I noticed was much later when I was trying to figure out like, what the heck, why is there this disconnect? Partly it was because like M2 didn't rise as much as M1 did. And I, and, and you look, so you look at the components and part of it was like, um, there was a big outflow from, uh, money market mutual funds. And so I think part of what was going on was like in 2008, again, um, you know, that one, uh, institution that it broke the buck and so forth. Like, so there were a lot of money market, um, funds that people thought were basically equivalent to cash, but they earned a yield. And then they panicked and I think they took their money out of that and put it into conventional checking accounts. And also the FDIC, the limit was raised from 100,000 to 250,000 in this period too. So I think that's partly what happened. So yeah, M1 rose, but it was like the demand to hold cash, like actual checking account balances went way up because of the panic. Mm. And so I think that's partly to explain that, yeah, the Fed flooded the market with money. And so if you want to think of it this way, yes, there was CPI inflation, but relative to a counterfactual of when they would have come down 10%. You know I mean, in other words, the public decides to hold more money. If the Fed hadn't flooded the market with more money, you would have seen consumer prices actually dropping a bit. They actually did fall a little bit in the yeah. uh, fall of 2008. That's right. So I think that's, that's one way of looking at it. Mm. Maybe gasoline would have been 75 cents a gallon had the Fed not stepped in. So there's that that kind of stuff um, as well. Last thing I'll say is you, you raised an excellent point. I'm not even sure how to think through this. I haven't come to any decisive conclusions, but you're right. When we say, oh, the Fed now is tightening and they're raising interest rates, does it matter that the way they're raising it is by increasing how much they pay on excess reserves versus just vacuuming money out of the system, which is what, you know, the so it clearly makes sense that tightening means rates are rising because they're sucking money out of the system. Like clearly that's going to cause pain, but now it's not as obvious. What if the way they're raising rates is by paying banks a higher amount, 
but the but the you know the like you said the balance sheet of the Fed is not falling off a cliff. Then it's not as obvious. Does that have the same macro impact uh, in terms of tightening credit conditions? I'm not, no. I'm not as sure about that. So maybe this will be the time. Yeah, the inverted yield curve actually doesn't mean a recession comes. And if that happens, maybe we'll go back to the drawing board and say, oh, well, yeah, a big difference is this fact. Yeah. And there's, there's so many different factors, you know, right now. Uh, I had on John Cochran about the fiscal theory of the price level. But I think there's, there's a lot of interesting insights that are there, you know, and, um, and that kind of goes in with my more monetarist. Whenever I was at Texas Tech, you were at Texas Tech for a while at Dr. Ronald Gilbert was my mentor there, and he was big monetarist. And so I learned a lot about that, you know, thinking about the increase in the money supply and everything else. And, you know, the federal government running the massive deficits that they are now. <laughs> And we're expecting to have $2 trillion a year. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, more than $32 trillion in national debt. Just interest, net interest on the debt is going to be a trillion dollars. I mean, this is unsustainable. And the Federal Reserve is going to start playing an even larger role in this um, situation. I mean, at $9 trillion, they're at what, 40, 45% of GDP is, is, is their balance sheet. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And there's been some writing out there that they want to get back down to about 10% of GDP. And if they do that, that's going to be a massive out, uh, outflow of dollars from the economy. Then it's like, where does the growth come from? <laughs> and, and I don't see from the Biden administration or the Senate Democrats right now that are going to be looking at any sort of pro-growth policy, which, you know, I think that the biggest pro-growth policy we could have right now is actually cutting government spending. Mm -hmm. We've got to find a way to rein in government spending or this is going to continue to get out of control for the future, which will lead to more boom and bust cycles which will uh, more bust, I think, <laughs> overall, but, but create even more problems with the Federal Reserve, our fiat currency system, with the value of the dollar, the de-dollarization that's going on across the globe. And we've got some major challenges, Bob. And I know that you and I are Christians. We, we have our faith in a higher power than that's here, but we both have kind of this calling, I think, to be able to explain these things to people to provide some way of prosperity. Right. And, and I wonder if you were kind of king for the day or, or something, I know that's big because we don't want to be big government, but what would be some of the key first things? And, and then we'll wrap up here that you would put out there to say, look, this is where we need to be doing in order to get more prosperity and not go down this path of socialism and, and everything else. Sure, sure. Great, great question. Um, so again, with the caveat that what would I do if I were president? I would resign. Right? Yeah. All that stuff, you know, I, but yeah, if the idea is if, if, Perhaps to raise it, if they're, if the government and Fed officials are asking me for advice, maybe, and if I were, or if I were to write a novel in which there yeah. was a turnaround where they didn't just all, you know, become voluntarists and pacifists overnight, what would it look like with those caveats, folks? Yeah, I think a huge thing would be, if, for example, if the federal government just got rid of the income tax and they took everyone out of the IRS building and literally dynamited it. I get took people out so no one gets hurt. <laughs> just yeah. to show Americans, no, we're serious. It's not that the next incoming administration is going to reinstate this. This is done. And then is it started slashing government spending. And so we right originally like the deficit would explode. But if they I think if they showed creditors around the world, no, well, look at we really are structurally cutting spending very aggressively, like maybe, you know, four hundred billion the first year and then eight hundred billion, you know, cumulated by the next year and so on. Yeah. And just doing things like telling all these government employees you don't need to come to work tomorrow. Like, you know, people in the EEA Department of Education, like all sorts of things. One thing is you could just go through and say, if your department's not in the constitution, you're out of a job. But in terms of like easing the pain, or say, we'll still pay you your salary and maybe based on, you know, your your um, history with the, with the, you know, your, Tenure. what's that called? Senior, senior, your tenure. Yeah. 
you know, like, oh, well, we'll, we'll pay you at your current rate for six months. And the critical thing is if they go get another job, they still get paid whatever you said, right? You don't want them waiting to go work in the private sector. You want them going to the private sector right away. That's good. That's not, that's not bad. They're not double dipping. Yeah. And so you do that. So over time, you know, the government spending on personnel just shrinks rapidly, but it, you know, it'd be too shocking just to tell everyone you're out of work. We're not paying you if they had a whole career based on being a civil servant. Mm -hmm. Um, so just doing that, I think, and then so for the private people, the private sector originally, who now their tax rate went from whatever, you know, on the margin, 45% down to 10% or something, there would be a, the, yeah, a huge explosion in economic activity. And so I think in terms of the conventional figures, you would see just, you know, the expansion of private GDP would probably be growing at like 25% for the first few years, which indeed, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the only thing that was right after World War II, you saw something like that. Um, and then massive fire sale of government assets, right? The government is sitting on trillions of assets, real, real estate. They own the majority of like some land in the West that the U.S. government does. All kinds of mineral resources, offshore yeah. things, they could open that up. Um, so there's lots of assets the federal government could sell off in this intermediate period while they're waiting for spending to come down. And, and you know, the remaining revenue is, you know, there's things, government revenue besides the income tax, right? The, the income tax, was only instituted in the early 1900s, a modern form of it. So right, the government did get get by without it beforehand. And I think that would be huge. And the central bank just let the the, the bonds mature, right? Let, let those things roll off naturally and just let the balance sheet start, start start shrinking. You know, it's, I would like them to ultimately just go towards just completely privatizing money and banking. Right. Um, but in terms of, you know, having the Fed do something in the meantime, yeah, just let, let the bonds mature and roll off and shrink that way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on those things. I think that would be great. And I mean, ultimately, it's about getting government out of the way, let people prosper, <laughs> have more liberty and prosperity. And so, um, you know, Bob, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I could talk to you all day. We need to have you back on. We'll have a good discussion. And I hope people will go and check out the Bob uh, Bob Murphy show. And it's a, it's a great show. You'll learn a lot as we had this discussion today. This is the stuff that he talks about all the time. So, Bob, God bless you and your family. Thank you for all that you do. Thanks so much for having me, Vance. It's a great conversation. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.